Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Wes, I'm going to go back to your childhood in Baltimore. What's the first brand you remember having an impact on you as a young boy? Oh, brother. Um, In Baltimore, probably Lido's Pizza, uh, which I still occasionally get FedEx, so packaged up, frozen, and FedEx out to me here. Uh, and every time I go back to see my mom, I'm, I'm always, uh, of course, having to hit that. Uptis pretzels. I order those from walmart.com because they're much better than that crappy Snyder pretzel out here on the West Coast. So, uh, <laughs> um, Pizza and pretzels, pretty good. Pizza and pretzels. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Wes Nichols, one of the brightest minds in our industry in marketing technology, entrepreneurship, and business transformation. Wes is currently a partner in March Capital, an LA-based venture capital firm with investments in a variety of cloud-based software companies. I first met and worked with Wes more than a decade ago when I joined the advisory board of MarketShare, a predictive analytics company Wes co-founded. Wes and team sold MarketShare to Newstar in 2015. Prior to MarketShare, Wes co-founded Direct Partners, which he sold to Omnicom, the giant advertising and media company. Wes is a man of many interests and boundless energy. He currently serves on the board of a bunch of companies. Most of them are March Capital Investments. He is an active member of YPO, the Young President's Organization. He is the author of one of Harvard Business Review's most read cover stories. Hint, he has another one coming. He is a student of architecture, and get this, Wes is a recent graduate of the Los Angeles Police Department's Academy. This is my conversation with my friend, Wes Nichols. Wes, welcome to the CMO Podcast. It's about time we have you on this show. I disclosed in the intro that we are friends, and my first question is, do you remember when we first met? Oh, brother. Uh... By the way, I'm not sure I do, but go ahead. See what you say. I'm getting way too old uh, to remember. The, it had to be at the ANA uh, in Orlando. The ANA is the big annual meeting of the big trade association in our industry every October in Orlando. It's a great meeting. Thousands of people. Great way to connect. Yeah, and and we had begun uh, creating a, uh, a a best in class of analytics awards in partnership with the ANA because uh, Bob, the CEO, was so keen on making sure that. 
analytics and the use of data and data-driven decision-making became a priority for the CMO community that we actually created an award program to find the best people. So I was usually on stage presenting that each year, and that, that, that was probably when we met. I think that's right, Wes. And obviously, we met with Market Share, which we'll talk about a little bit later. One of the companies you found, and I served on your advisory board. I, you know, in preparing for this and thinking about this discussion, because you are a friend, I thought, where do I even begin? You have so much to say about technology, about CMOs, about leadership, about venture capital, and also about living a nice, good life. You're a partner at March Capital right now. You're a board member of seven companies. Most of them are investments of March Capital. You're an advisor to CEOs and CMOs. And I think most interesting, you have undergone police training at the LAPD. But I'd like you to start, Wes, with kind of stepping back from all this. And we have a lot of young listeners. What are your lessons in living a fulfilling, good life? Because I know you well. You put family first. You know, you, you just, you value the right stuff. So if you can just step back, and if I asked you to write a little book about living a good life, what would some of those chapters be? No, thank you. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it means a lot coming from you. Part of it is having the right parents and the right family mm -hmm. structure. Uh, that obviously gave me a big leg up. Uh, I am uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, and where a lot of my family is from, not too far from uh, your your hometown of Lancaster. Mm -hmm. And yep. And I think, you know, Growing up where I did and how I did uh, was was very influential. My dad was a uh, is an architect and was an entrepreneur uh, early on in his career. So we got to take the ride with him, and <laughs> there were some great years and some horrible years. And um, it's a lot of work, and architecture is a tough business, and so tough he talked me out of doing it uh, because you know it was it was such a brutal space. But what was appealing to me was this blend of art and science. And I think I landed in the industry most similar to architecture in, mm. by landing in marketing and, and into this kind of area of art and science and and obviously leaning more towards the science side of things. I had gone to uh, a small college in Virginia and, been, and had focused on uh, behavioral psychology. I was always very interested in that. I, I'd gone there originally pre-med. I'd gotten a scholarship because I was doing a lot of advanced work in biology in high school and chemistry and uh, had gotten a scholarship for pre-med uh, and had gone down that path until I hit organic chemistry and then had to take a hard right turn uh, into behavioral psychology. And there I also took some classes in criminology because it was an area of interest. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I've, I've got a lot of family, um, including parents that were in the military, in national defense, in the intelligence community, and policing. Uh, so I come from a long line of, of service. Uh, my my uh, wife's father uh, was a colonel in the Marines and did multiple tours in Vietnam and and was in the Joint Chiefs of Staff when we met. Wow. So that that obviously had a big influence on on me as well. Uh, you know the the imperative of serving and and thinking about the country as a, as a country. I feel like I started getting serious about work. Uh, right out of college, like I, I got out of college and I literally had no idea what I wanted to do with with a liberal arts psychology degree and a studio arts minor. Uh, I, I I knew I I knew I wanted to uh, I knew I was ambitious and I knew I I wanted to do something that would be income producing, um, and you know so I wound up you know through a family friend landing at an ad agency specifically a direct marketing agency uh, in Baltimore. You know, that was 
but my first kind of taste of getting into data as it relates to... What was your first job there, Wes? Uh, first job was doing list research, targeting for uh, direct mail. And then I then moved kind of quickly into account services and learning more of the strategy side of things. But in that job, I learned everything there was to learn about about working with data to letter shops and printing and, I mean, it, it, you know, deduping and all this other kind of stuff. The printing, I learned a lot about printing at that time, which is, this was pre-internet, obviously, but it was, uh, you know, what I think the internet became. You know, the direct mail and direct marketing was was a precursor to digital marketing. But I, I started in, in, in Baltimore and very quickly moved to Richmond for a job there at a company that, that was helping launch Capital One. I got I worked very closely there with the team, the leadership team, and you know had worked with the two uh, co-founders of Capital One, uh, you know, in in their quest of uh, in their quest to bring data and analytics to decision making, and they created a thing called information based strategy (IBS), um, not in the stomach ailment, and mm-hmm. uh, but IBS is is all about driving data driven decisions through all aspects of the business, and this was early. This was, yeah, they were a, a real pioneer in direct marketing. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, so using using data, uh, everything from credit scoring to what offers people were made to direct mail targeting and uh, telemarketing scripts, things like that. It was very cool, uh, and and it I just it fit my logic brain. You know, one thing I didn't mention is when I was geeking out in middle school, I used to remember going to the library whenever I could in middle school, and they had several books that were published that had published the NTSB air traffic accidents. And their findings. So I would devour those and wherever I could. And I, I literally, not to sound too morbid, but every month I check into the NTSB and I read their air incidents reports. There's something I find interesting because it forensically goes back and decomposes why something happened. Mm-hmm. And it's never one thing. That's what's interesting. You always hear about uh, with airline accidents. It's the Swiss cheese effect. If you, a stack of Swiss cheese, you have to line up all the little holes perfectly for something bad to happen. Um, and it's it's always a multitude of things coming together, whether it's weather and pilot fatigue or yeah. equipment malfunction or the ailerons weren't working or w- whatever. That always appealed to me, that looking at how how they were able to use data to understand and explain why something happened. But looking at that kind of, you know, interest in in understanding data and science, mm-hmm. having the, you know, a lot of, you know, military and police in my family, um, you know, I was interested in in criminology. So I started taking criminology class in college. And, and I was also involved in back home uh, through high school and college uh, in, in the police explorer program, which is kind of like Boy Scouts for but tied to a police department. And it really helped me helped me really importantly with some, you know, male mentoring in my life and leadership skills. And, you know, it just wound up being something that was, you know, exceptionally important to me. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility to be 15 years old and being taken out to murder scenes to find evidence and, and to walk scenes and help the, help the detectives out. And, um, and it felt like I was doing something really good. I, you know, because we were, we were extra hands and bodies to help out on, on things, but it was still something that, uh, that I, I, I took a lot of pride in. Since the FBI wouldn't have me when I did apply, going into marketing was the uh, the next logical path of, of using, you know, figuring out ways to use this data uh, and an analytics oriented brain. And then I had the off- opportunity to move to Chicago with that same firm. And then ultimately, my wife and I, we got married in Chicago. And then ultimately, we got a job offer in uh, in California, in Southern California, where I'd never even stepped foot. So, Wes, the themes I'm gathering here, curiosity for sure, uh, data, service, and and really, I think, 
most fundamentally following your passions. Yeah. And the money and all of that stuff follows. My wife and I were talking that I think we moved to California. I think we probably had about $5,000 in the bank when we moved to California from Chicago, newlyweds, cat in the back of the car, you know, and, uh, you know, loaded up the car and drove and A, it's the place we wanted to be. You know, we knew, we knew the weather was going to, uh, play a, a part in our life. Uh, and we knew that the, you know, the California had a, you know, meritocracy that we respected. It was really based on what you could bring to the table. And I really appreciate that still to this day about California. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Wes, what are you most passionate about right now in your life of all the activities? It's a tough one because I've learned two new jobs in one year. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, past 18 months. And, and, I'm, and I'm enjoying that. And I think that if I were to, dis- to distill that down, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about learning. And I find that having just gone through this police academy that, that we'll talk about, you know, that was harder than the two graduate school programs I've gone through. You know, maybe it's because of my age or maybe because of the way my brain works now or, or definitely because of the content. Um, it's like going to law school. So, Wes, the two jobs in the last 18 months, one was going through the police academy and the other one was, was March Capital. And learning that side of the table. Uh, as, a, I, I, as I've spent most of my career, once we moved to California, spent most of my career uh, as, as an entrepreneur uh, in the marketing and advertising and the technology space, I've always been on the side of raising money from, from investors. But mm-hmm. now, all of a sudden, this, this past two years, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, you know, learning how to work that other side of the table and, and have a lot more respect and understanding of, of the pressure and the responsibility that entails. We're going to talk about the venture capital piece in a minute, but I would like to pause and talk about your involvement with the Los Angeles Police Department. I mean, I talked with you, I don't know, maybe a year ago when you're in the middle of your academy, and we had the longest, most interesting discussion about that. But could you start with, you know, after you sold your company and to New Star, and you got involved in venture capital, you decided this was something you wanted to do. What was the catalyst for your involvement with the LAPD? And tell us your experience there, why you did it, what it was like, what it was like training and working with LAPD officers, and what's some of the insights you have for us from that experience? It's it's kind of fun. I, I feel like a bit of an outs- I am an outsider into that world now, yet you know, deep enough into it to see what's really happening. And it's been a real eye opener, I have to say. So why did you want to do it, Wes? Start with that. I'd say the first motivation was, you know, we had put together market share in Newstar and then we sold Newstar to Golden Gate Capital. When I stopped working full time on in an operating role, I said, what do I want to do? Like, how do what's what do I want to do next? Like, I don't want to start another business. I don't want to run something. Um, but what was important to me? in the process. And part of that was mentoring. And the other part of this was I look back and go, you know, that police explorers was really important to me, uh, you know, formative for me growing up. And there are a lot of at risk kids here in Los Angeles that that benefit from the explore uh, from the explore program here, uh, now called the cadet program. I wonder if I can get involved to help expand the cadet program here 
So I found, you know, one of uh, another one of our board members from Market Share who was involved in on that foundation, uh, and or the LA Police Foundation, and I started talking to him about joining that board because I I, I thought it would be that would be a good path to start to help there. And uh, so that was really the initial, this was six years ago. This was still while I was at market share. Uh, I got involved in that on that board, but I've also started being pulled into helping the chief uh, with one of his most important mandates, which is uh, technology innovation. And, and what that means is it's the average officer spends 50% of their time doing paperwork in a station. If you could reduce that by half, then that is the equivalent of a thousand officers back on the street. And that's immensely important as it relates to community building and relationship building and uh, trust building with the between uh, police and community. And so we've been looking at that. We've been working on that with the police department. And I mean, it's super fundamental. It's like nothing tricky. So that's how it all started. And then as I got more and more exposed, I started meeting some other people who were re- involved in the reserve officer program. And it is the exact same academy that full-time officers go through. It's the same the same standards. And it's just also the same state-level uh, qualifications that need to be met. So I learned more and more about it and talked to some of my friends who had been doing it, and they loved it. They're passionate about it. And the chief talked to me and said, hey, we've got this. You you, you know a lot about this stuff. You should maybe get involved. So it took me a year. The, the, the process... Uh, I think it's something like 7% acceptance rate. Uh, it's very hard. I mean, just, just going through the background and the polygraphs and the physical stuff and, um, this, you know, the psychology interviews. And uh, I, I had the background investor, investigator when I sat down for the first time with him, um, you know, so oh, I like your neighborhood. And I said, oh, you, did you, you used to do patrol there? And he said, no, I was there yesterday interviewing your neighbors. <laughs> it's like, wow. yeah. So, I mean, it's super thorough and, uh, you know, but, that was the genesis of of going through that process. And I started it the month after uh, the George Floyd uh, murder, uh, which added a, a, you know, an interesting layer to uh, and, you know, a, a very somber layer to to the process and, and to the academy itself. Uh, we had a, a small number of people in our in the class, about 12 people, and we all spent a lot of time talking about that topic. We talked about um, policing and you know, in these communities and, and where the, you know, where there have been trust issues. I mean, the first few days of, of the Academy were about implicit bias and spending a lot of time talking about those things and the importance of, of uh, understanding uh, different perspectives people have. It was hard though. I, I mean, there's a lot of classroom time, a lot of legal work, uh, mostly legal, understanding all the laws and being tested on it. Like I was tested in ninth grade and pop quizzes mm-hmm. and things like that. And then, then there's a the physical piece and the tactics and things like that. But and then the field work too, right? Yeah. So then, I, yeah. So I, I, it took a year to apply. It took six months to get through the academy. And then there's been a year long probation period, which I just finished in October. Um, so I've been going out and volunteering about 12 hours a week, usually on, a, usually Sundays for 12 hour shifts on Sundays and uh, where I'm assigned to a field training officer. And you just take whatever radio calls come up in a black and white and you respond. And we've had burglaries, robberies, uh, death investigations, um, a lot of domestic situations. The eye opening piece of this has been exactly how hard COVID's hit Mm -hmm. so many communities and people outside of the, you know, the bubble that, that I think most of us, uh, operate in, in terms of the marketing and, uh, advertising industry or technology industry. And you actually see how hard it's been on a lot of, a lot of people. 
the hardest thing has been, um, I, you know, I've been able to, uh, talk three teenagers, uh, out of uh, suicide. They were actively in the process and, um, you know, spent time talking to each of them and trying to, you know, inject a little bit of uh, hope talking about some personal experiences I have with family members. And, um, you know, the hardest thing was, uh, having to let a, uh, calling a mom and letting her, letting, letting her know that we found her daughter dead and, uh, what, and that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. But I went and met the, met the mom about four days later, just on my own time to go, just to put some, uh, just to connect with her. And, you know, and, and she appreciated the fact that I wasn't 21 years old, right out of, right out of, uh, college, but I actually have kids. I have a kid and I have compassion and, you know, made, made the worst day of her life, you know, 1% better, you know, that that's important to me. So. No, it's amazing. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Wes, what what have you learned about yourself in this experience? I mean, you're a pretty self-aware guy. You're a very experienced business person and entrepreneur. But what about yourself did you learn going through this application, this training, and this field work? That it's, I, I already knew that I had had a lot of grit. And that's something I just, you know, I think was instilled in me from childhood. And I think that, I think, is an enormous driver variable that we all need. And I think that we have a, a new generation that maybe doesn't have as much grit as they need to to cope with things that are thrown their way. I think that grit and that determination that helped me build two companies. I mean, the entrepreneurial process is pretty shitty. It's it's rough and mm-hmm. it's lonely. It's scary. You know, it's 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 got really high highs and really low lows. And um, you know, and you know it. You've been you're doing it yourself. I mean, it's it's a it's harrowing. And you know, and I think I have gone going through this now and looking back, I feel like, well, that's probably why most businesses fail. Like you hear about the 90% of small businesses fail. I think part of it is they probably had a crappy idea and uh, didn't, didn't execute well. Part of it was they didn't adapt fast enough to the market conditions. But part of it was they just couldn't handle the day in, day out uh, pressures of it. And, uh, and that's real. So I found, I, I feel like just personally, that's something I, I, this whole process has affirmed that, um, you know, I've also known I, I've also known that there's there's a fair degree of bravery, I guess, is for lack of a better word, um, that entrepreneurs have to have. You know, that you have to. It's pretty insane to start a business, and like like when we started Market Share, I mean, the idea of turning what we did into software, which had been done by you know consultants at, operating out of their garages and like mom and pop shops, all of a sudden automating that and turning it into software and doing it proactively and forward looking instead of a backward looking research project, 
you know, and then selling to CMOs who've never really had technology budgets before. You know, I look at myself now and go, that was a <laughs> crazy idea. Yeah, that was a reach. What the hell? I, I did that. I, I launched the first company the month Alex, my son, was born. Um, we moved to LA with, you know, we had that, no money in the bank. And then we had a, and then we had a kid, you know, and I was all of a sudden launching a company within a month. I mean, like those are like, other than having someone die in our family, those are about most of the drivers that make people go crazy. And, but, but I think that level of determination, it just had to happen. Like I, I didn't see any other option. Uh, so I've just powered through it. And I now look back, I, I look back at some of my old calendars and my travel schedule and, I had to look at my old United schedule for about five years ago, and I just couldn't believe it's insane. But it was like what had to happen; it had to get done, and, and it did. And so the same here with the police. It's like we—I just powered through it. Like you know what? I was much older than anyone else involved there. Um, the physical stuff—I'm in pretty good shape. But there's, you know, I had to go through a lot of cardiac stress training. I had to do, you know, resting control, like Kyle kind of McGraw stuff, where you're like, you know, mm-hmm. on the ground and handcuffed and laying on my stomach and someone on my back. <laughs> just, I mean. It's pretty intense. I got tased, you know, I mean, that sucked. Uh, do not recommend that. Uh, but I, I think the grit and determination is something that if I had to go back and kind of summarize everything and, and, and life lessons, I think that's a really important one. Wes, where do you see this going for you? You're now a reserve officer. Are you still serving on the board? I mean, what do you see your involvement with LAPD in the next five to 10 years? I'm, I'm going to do this as long as I can. Um, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I feel like I really wanted to find something that I would be able to allocate a, you know, a, a meaningful amount of time to doing something for the community. And this feels like a really good one. I mean, it is helping people at their worst moments. And, um, I mean, I've helped people, you know, who are homeless agree to get into rehab. I, I feel like it's emotionally exhausting, but it's also rewarding. Um, I, I'm really also balancing that with, um, where I'm spending the vast majority of my time, which is, now learning how to pick companies to invest. I'd already been doing maybe 10 years worth of, for the past 10, 12 years of private company and public company boards. So I've learned a lot about governance along the way. And mm-hmm. and uh, and I also knew as a founder what I wanted out of my board members. Um, so I think I've been you know able to really hone my board management uh, and contributions and um, and you know become a become a good board member. But uh, now taking that to the next level, okay, now let's find companies that we can then start to put 10, 20, 30, $40 million checks into that, that we can really help accelerate their growth and take them to the next level. Uh, that's what I'm doing at March, which has been really interesting. And that requires its own level of focus and determination uh, and grit to, you know, because you have to talk to a thousand companies to get to two or three that you might be interested in actually supporting because you only have so many, uh, you know, so many time slots to, uh, you know, to do this right. So you're, you're with March now. For those entrepreneurs who are listening to this, Wes, what, are, what do you think in the venture capital space investors are looking for these days, 2022, 2023, in terms of ideas, teams, founders? You know, when you're sitting with your March colleagues, what's kind of your filter? What are the kind of things you're looking at? Well, you know, clearly, you know, I mean, what I liked about March, uh, relative to a lot of other firms I had been working with was it's, it, it was maniacally focused on, on a few areas that have, it's really paid off for them. It must be cloud-based enterprise, you know, uh, scalable type of business. It has to be in enterprise AI, cybersecurity, e-commerce enablement, or fintech. And you f- focus on these, these, these core areas 
They're all high growth, hyper growth areas. Um, it's all B2B enterprise, all the stuff I was doing at market share, mm-hmm. selling new ideas to the C-suite. So I think, you know, what, what we tend to look to look for are, you know, obviously the team, like what's the team look like, who the CEO is able to attract or who a founder is able to attract to a team is a good barometer of their ability to evangelize a story and, uh, and evangelize that vision that they have. So have they gotten a really great team around them? Do, you, do they have a great product and uh, technology uh, uh, team in place? Do they have a great uh, you know, advisory board or board in place? Uh, what's the traction look like? Uh, you know, I see a lot of companies looking for money pre-revenue. And you know, I advise them, just, just wait. Just you know, tight, you know, tighten up the belt. Get, you know, get some clients. Show some revenue. And that removes a ton of risk from the table for the investor. And that means you don't have to give up so much in equity. And, uh, and you also start to have some traction that you can show. Uh, I know, you know, uh, John, uh, uh, my co-founder at, and I market share, we did that. We, we co-invested, you know, and, and we, we funded the first three years of the business personally. And it was tight. It was really mm-hmm. tight. We, we got a few months, we had a few months of, you know, you know, saw death at the door there. And, and yeah. but we got through there. And as a result, we were able to, maintain and outsize a much larger percentage of the company at by the time we got to the exit than we would have if we had raised money early on. So I, I, if you can do it, I, I recommend, you know, get some clients. It's important to go to market knowing that your first idea, your first messaging is not going to resonate. So the key is to listen, take that in, be humble enough to realize that maybe your idea isn't exactly dead on right and adapt. And that I find that it takes about three, three turns till a company starts to find that right uh, product market fit. And, um, you know, the ones that fail, it's kind of like go back to the airplane NTSB story. The, you know, the, you know, everyone always asks, well, why, why do those wings flex so much when they're, you know, when, when we're in turbulence, aren't they going to break off? It's like the wings would break off if they were fixed if they were if they were solid and didn't move then you're in real trouble so but the ability to have that torque and the flex is how you adapt to that you know the, that the, the changes that are happening outside the plane same in business if you could if you if you have that flex that you can adapt to the changes that you're hitting you know you hit a you hit weatherhead uh, you know, a storm cloud and, and, and then you come out and then you hit another layer of clouds or you hit an ice storm and you're flexing and adapting. Um, that matters. And I find that a lot of companies don't do that well. They don't listen or maybe they get they fall in love with an idea and then they go under or they burn through all their money. I love to find companies that have been through that. I think companies that have had, um, you know, if you're a few near death experiences is, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. always a good thing, too. I think that a big variable uh, is is whether someone's an immigrant or not. I think that speaks to the the grit. grit yeah. So uh, that's a variable. Have they had diversity in their life? I mean, I, I, Jim, Jim, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but one day I was out well, market share. I was flying to Chicago from L.A. and I was sitting next to this guy, and we started talking about you know what do you do, what do you do, sort of thing. And um, he was a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers, and. Um, and he's like, and so when he asked me what I'm doing, I told him, he said, Oh, you mean that Moneyball shit? And, uh, he, he was just like the guy at the beginning of Moneyball, like just, you know, 
anti-technology. Um, and But he, he said something really interesting. He said what analytics wouldn't pick up is something that they found to be really important, which is, you know, has has a person that they're looking at had, um, you know, some sort of trauma in their life? You know, family member, parent die, uh, raised very poor, um, immigrant, you know, something like that. He said that's that has been the primary variable that they found to be what can get someone through 180 baseball games a year. Like mm-hmm. you, they could be a great yeah. pitcher, but if they if they don't have that determination to get through that, then that's not a good hire for them. And that that's something that stuck with me from that that flight, even though he insulted me about my uh, my industry and career. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Wes, listen, I want to move to the creative brief because I have a few things I want you to go into that are sort of random. The first one is, if I dropped you into a Fortune 50 company right now as CMO, yes. what are some of the things you would look at? Oh, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I would only take the job if I had some level of P&L responsibility. Uh, if I, it was a comms type of CMO mm-hmm. position, I wouldn't take it. Uh, so the, the, the CMO position, I think, of the present and future is one that has revenue responsibility and ownership and uh, it isn't just seen as a cost center. Uh, I would also then start to assess uh, what their technology stack looks like. Uh, and and what, what I mean by that is I think that we're moving into very quickly an always on, always listening, always communicating world where, where brands and consumers are talking to each other you know, brands, whether they like it or not, are going to start are, are hearing from their customers. So that's why I'm seeing this this marriage of marketing and customer experience. So that's the other piece I'd look for in my job negotiation is to make sure that I own the customer experience piece of that. And that could be revenue. It could be telemarketing centers. It could be any touch point that that the company has with uh, with consumers. Is the is yeah. the leadership team and the board actually technology savvy? Are they do they embrace it or are they scared of it? You know, are they scared of of disintermediating their core source of revenue, or are they are they are they embracing the idea that they need to go direct to consumer and build those relationships? Um, therefore, that dictates what kind of technology stack is needed. And then I think of it like kind of like three legs of the stool. I think there's uh, there's a revenue management technology stack, which is the brains. That's analytics, attribution, planning, um, pricing, dynamic pricing. There's the execution stack. Which is like your arms and legs stuff. That's the e- email and CRM, just the, the stuff that pumps out the touch point marketing activity. Maybe the creative automation, uh, media automation. That's where the agencies get this intermediated. Ultimately, is mm-hmm. is is that piece. And then the third leg is the the foundational technology, which is that's where the CDP and identity, content management, those things that those things sit. I'd want to sit down and, with, and make sure that the that that the CMO has the authority to build the right technology stack that has those three arms. Uh, and it might, some of the elements might already exist and, and some of it might need to be blown up, but you need time to do that. And, and, and then of course the team, like does the team get it? Um, is there good, uh, is a good institutional memory? Um, do they understand and embrace this stuff? Uh, you know, those, those are some of the things I would want to take a look at first of all. And then uh, not to go. Not... No, no, Wes, it's wonderful. And I think I just want to pause there for everyone who is a CMO or aspiring CMO to listen for a moment to what you just heard, that th- this is the framework for which great CMOs focus and make a difference in their company's tra- trajectory. So thanks for sharing that, Wes. 
Wes, you, you had a very famous Harvard Business Review article, a cover story that was one of the most widely read stories ever. I hear you have another article in the works, or at least you're thinking about it. What is the focus of that article? It's it's building on on what I was just talking about and, and around um, what I would uh, you know call modern marketing and you know one that looks at 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 marketing and customer experience together. Mm-hmm. What's the role of AI? What's the role of automation? Not not dissimilar to the Capital One discussion from 30 years ago. Um, you know, how do you drive database uh, data driven decision making across the organization? And in some cases, how do you automate it? So it's always on and always adapting. So um, like when you use Waze on your phone, it doesn't present you with options that then you have to pull over and decide which one to take. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we're getting to that point where marketers are going to have that that the ability to have, you know, real time decisioning and offers and cross sells and things like that happening without without a whole lot of uh, involvement by humans or campaign oriented or calendar oriented approach, I think, is uh, is going to be displaced by uh, by an always on, always happening platform. Wes, who's been the most influential business mentor in your career? Besides you. Come on, Wes. Thank you for that. No, seriously, you've, you've been you've been immensely, um, immensely important. And, uh, and, you know, you know that, and I said that from the heart. So you can have the world's largest advertising budget at the world's largest package goods company and still be a great person and a great human and, and family person. That's, that's, that's what I try to live for. And that what I try to try to be at a, on a much smaller, smaller scale. So I, I really do value that. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, my partner here at, at March, who I've known for about 30 years, Jamie Montgomery has been, uh, we we met, we first met through uh, our kids going to church and then school together and then Boy Scouts together. Uh, Jamie helped me get into this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, mm-hmm. which wound up being incredibly important to me in terms of getting mentors. And then when I launched Market Share, you know, Jamie was who put John and I up in an extra few offices and we we spent two years in his office. And then, you know, when I was thinking about what to do next, he, you know, he said, well, hey, you, you had one of the biggest exits in, in uh, software as a service and technology here. You should probably be helping other entrepreneurs do the same. And and uh, so Jamie's been a very, uh, very important influencer in my life, too. Wes, besides your passion for law enforcement and the work you're doing. Is there another passion pivot we could see in Wes Nichols' future life? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Um, well, no. Uh, <laughs> you're going to stay the course. Like I said about the entrepreneur, finding three different turns until they mm-hmm. get it right. I feel like I've got a really good combination uh, going right. And I loved I loved market share. I, I loved the team. I loved building the company. I loved entrepreneurship. I loved working with clients. I really, I, I still do, and that's that's what I'm having fun now with with marches. I feel like now I moved to like what what I imagine being a grandparent is like, where you know you're not holding the baby, uh, you know when it's crying or a dirty diaper, you hand you hand that to the parent to handle. And uh, but now I'm able to help and and coach and do that. But then when it's poopy diaper time, it's still going back to the parent. Um, <laughs> the, I'm not in that stage of life anymore. And now it allows me to, as a, as a VC, to work with a number of these companies to help the CEOs, um, give them coaching and help them, you know, avoid some of the dumb stuff I did in, uh, in you know, my companies or, and maybe a few of the good things. And uh, good tips I got as being a board member is uh, NIFO, um, uh, nose in, fingers out. 
like you, you nose in, you yeah. know what's going on in the business, but your fingers are off it. You're not trying to be on the front seat, driving the steering wheel and messing things up. So, uh, you know, so I, I really try to practice NEFO as much as I can with, with these companies. And I, I don't see anything changing that I, I like that mix because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not ready. I, I've never going to go out and run something and, and, uh, you know, build something again, never say never, I guess, but I, I don't see that happening at all. So, but I like to balance, uh, Jim, I, I've got, you know, uh, my wife and I spend a lot of time traveling to family. We've done two family trips this, this month. And I just, right before our call, I got, I just finished booking a trip to two, uh, college graduations back East. And, you know, it's just, so we're very involved with family. We'll just, we'll just continue to do more of that. We're using a ta- uh, house in Tahoe as our home base for family reunions and visits. And I just feel like that's a good three-legged stool. If I can do that along with March Capital and then, and then community oriented things, whether it's uh, supporting Green Dot, which is a, a nonprofit school that we're involved in, or some of the, you know, some of the things that we're doing in ecotourism uh, in Africa uh, to help uh, reduce poaching of animals to LAPD and policing, you know, you know, we're just trying to be involved in things that we actually, that, that are passion projects for us. Well, I started this podcast by talking about you live a good life, Wes, and I think we've just gone deep into that life and there are lessons, uh, le- the lessons abound here about making choices based on, on what you can do of service for others. So Wes, thank you for sharing your insights, your wisdom, your care, and your heart. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. And I've never shared any of this with anyone. So this is a, you're, you're a very good interview. We have an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wes. That was my conversation with Wes Nichols. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. First one, the power of grit and determination. Wes talked about what it takes to be a great entrepreneur. He quickly went to grit. He has it himself, and he's now a venture capitalist, and he looks for companies and teams that have grit. Second takeaway, agility. In all businesses, you don't get it right the first time, probably not the second time, probably not even the third time. Wes talked about how powerful it is to be agile, to adapt to change, to be willing to admit mistakes, to be humble, to keep improving. Third takeaway, follow your heart. Wes is a graduate now of the LAPD Police Department Academy. He has a tremendous commitment to service. This has led to a more fulfilling life. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.